0: The final faculty person I met with was Dr. Terry Gernsheimer, who reviewed three papers from ASH on what has recently become one of the most interesting areas of hematology, ITP. Dr. Gernsheimer began by commenting on the recent evolution and understanding of the biology of this disease.
1: About 20 years ago, there started becoming some argument over whether or not the bone marrow, although looking like it was quite active, was ineffectively producing platelets, if producing them at all. And then there were some studies about 10 years ago that began to suggest that megakaryocytes in the bone marrow are perhaps not as healthy as they might look. And what we're thinking look like young megakaryocytes may actually be megakaryocytes that are unable to carry out their function. Now, this is really not that surprising considering the fact that most antibodies against platelets and ITP are directed against glycoprotein 2B3A or 1B9. These are antigens that are also present on megakaryocytes. So it shouldn't be surprising that when we take healthy megakaryocytes and stem cells and incubate them with sera from patients with ITP that we don't see normal growth, that we see abnormal apoptosis. And so when thrombopoietin was finally discovered and we began to measure it in different clinical states such as patients on chemotherapy, aplastic anemia, the levels were markedly elevated versus um, normal persons. But in ITP, we saw that if the level of thrombopotent was elevated at all, if it was, it was minimally
0: elevated. Just to backtrack in terms of the physiology, is there some type of feedback loop in terms of thrombopoietin production? I thought it was just kind of produced at a steady state.
1: And it is. And that's what's so interesting about this. If we assume that we have a healthy liver, where thrombopoietin is normally produced, the majority of thrombopoietin is produced. Thrombopoietin is then made at a fairly steady state. In an inflammatory state, thrombopoietin levels probably go up. The liver, like other agents that it makes, such as ferritin, will increase production. But if we talk about a person who's otherwise without any other systemic problems, thrombopoietin is fairly constant. So what happens is thrombopoetin binds not only to the megakaryocyte in the stem cell, but it also binds to the platelet. And when the platelet level goes up, more thrombopoetin is going to be bound. That thrombopoetin is going to stay on that platelet. The plasma level of thrombopoetin will go down, and less is seen by the marrow and the megakaryocyte, and the stimulation doesn't occur, and so growth will stop somewhat. If the platelet count drops more thrombopoetin is available because of less binding to platelets, and therefore more thrombopoetin makes it to the megakaryocytes. So it's a very, very simple feedback loop. It's probably as simple as you can get. What happens in ITP, we're not sure, and we do an awful lot of hand-waving when we look at it, but what some people feel is that thrombopoetin is being bound to these platelets and it's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The thrombopoetin that's bound to the platelets goes out with the platelet upon destruction and it's not there anymore. There's also a very large megakaryocyte mass. And so thrombopoetin may be binding to these megakaryocytes, the thrombopoetin that's there, but they may not be able to do as much with it as they should. So you keep expanding the megakaryocyte mass and binding more and more thrombopoetin, but they can't do anything with the megakaryocytes. So when we found thrombopoetin, of course, there was this mad rush to make a recombinant, and a recombinant was indeed made, and everyone was quite excited about it. And it was first tested, actually, on a few ITP patients, and it actually worked quite well, and we were very excited about that. And at the same time, looking for a bigger market, they also tested normal platelet donors, so apheresis platelet donors, hoping that, well, we can drive their count up. And then we can put them on the apheresis machines and collect so many more platelets, and won't that just be wonderful? Well, the problem was that, indeed, it increased the level of platelets that you could, or the amount of platelets that one could harvest from an apheresis donor. But several donors actually developed antibodies against the pegylated protein, the pegylated recombinant protein. And these antibodies were cross-reactive with the native protein with native thrombopoetin. So these normal volunteers and donors actually wound up making antibodies against native thrombopoetin and became severely thrombocytopenic, some of them pancytopenic because thrombopoietin is important in stem cell maturation as well. Some of these donors actually and volunteers remained pancytopenic or thrombocytopenic for years, and I think one was up to four years. They have all since then recovered, but it taught us a very valuable lesson about cross-reactivity of proteins, and a recombinant is not necessarily equal to a non-antigenic protein. So at that point, the challenge, I think, was to find something that could stimulate the thrombopoetin receptor, but not necessarily look like thrombopoetin, so that if an antibody was made at all, it would not be cross-reactive with the native protein. And although they might neutralize the drug itself, they wouldn't neutralize their native protein. That brings us to where the trials began when libraries were looked at for thrombopotent receptor agonists. The first agent that actually went into clinical trials was at that time called AMG-531, now marketed as remiplistim. And the pivotal trials were presented two years ago at ASH, looking at both splenectomized and non-splenectomized patients, and was shown that over a period of six months, these agents were extremely effective in increasing and maintaining platelet counts in a safe range. The target range was between 50 and 200,000, were effective in decreasing significant bleeding. All bleeding didn't decrease Necessarily, but significant bleeding decreased. And many of these patients were extremely refractory to other therapies. As I mentioned, many of them had undergone
0: splenectomy previously. So, what's the mechanism of action of this agent?
1: The agent binds. So, let's talk first about remiplistam, which is a very small molecule. It is stabilized since it would otherwise have a very short half life. It's stabilized by actually binding it to the FC portion of an IgG molecule and it binds right at the thrombopoietin receptor and which then turns on the JAK-STAT pathway just as thrombopoietin would do to then make megakaryocytes proliferate to make the stem cell proliferate to make more stem cells to make more megakaryocytes and to make more platelets to release more platelets so it really acts just like thrombopoietin to set off the pathway that thrombopoetin would otherwise do, and binding exactly at the same receptor site. There is another oral agent. That is a subcutaneous agent that's given once weekly. Again, it has a long half-life because it's being bound to an FC portion of IgG. The other agent that has gone through pivotal trials and is now also on the market is L-thrombopag. This is an oral agent taken once daily, it binds not to the same portion of the thrombopoietin receptor, but actually to the intramembrane portion of the thrombopoietin receptor, and again, then sets off the same mechanism via the JAK-STAT pathway to increase megakaryocyte proliferation and platelet release.
0: Now, could you maybe bring in the pathophysiology what we understand about ITP? You know, because now you're talking about stimulation, thrombopoietin, and I'm thinking antibodies, Mm -hmm. destruction. How does this all come together?
1: So what we do know is there's no question that it is a disorder of platelet destruction, that antibodies bind to platelets, which are then recognized by the RE system, the macrophage and splenic macrophages in particular, to clear these antibody-bound particles. Now, in terms of why somebody develops ITP, I think that's a much harder question, and I'm not going to get into it other than to say that more than likely, either because of a virus or because of just immune dysregulation, suddenly an antigen that should otherwise be recognized as native and the immune system should have tolerance to suddenly is recognized as foreign. It may be that after some time, this may start out very slow, but after some time, After the macrophage ingests the platelet through epitope spread, we're now going to have a lot more antigens on the platelets that are recognized. And we do know that people tend to perhaps start just with glycoprotein 2B3A antibodies and over time develop other antibodies against other antigens. And that's kind of what gets the ball rolling. But again, part of the problem is that these same antigens are present on the megakaryocyte. And so what we think happens is that the megakaryocyte is indeed damaged by these same antibodies. So not only are we clearing the platelets more rapidly, but we're also not putting the same numbers of platelets into the circulation. So although there may be some stimulation with thrombopoietin, thrombopoietin levels, as I mentioned, do not seem to be as high as one would expect them to be, probably because they're binding and not doing anything. And also because those antibodies are somehow suppressing megakaryocyte growth and development. We know there's abnormal apoptosis in ITP megakaryocytes. We know that they don't mature normally. They don't grow in culture quite as well. So clearly there are two sides to this coin. There's a destructive physiology that's going on, and there's also a problem with platelet production.
0: But these two new agents aren't affecting the destruction, the antibody destruction, just the production.
1: Correct. And in fact, one of the interesting things about these agents is that occasionally when you encounter a patient who is not responding all that well to one of these growth factors, even a patient who has never responded well to prednisone before, just giving them a touch of prednisone, I have one patient who I just give five milligrams of prednisone. She's never responded to 60 milligrams of prednisone. And she was not responding to one of these agents, and just adding a very small amount of an agent that may be inhibiting destruction seems to affect the balance enough that these patients
0: can now respond. Now, has that strategy been reported in the clinical trials, or is it just something you've done?
1: It's something that I've noticed. It's something other investigators have noticed. We have, I believe, mentioned in some of the publications that, if nothing else, people need to be very careful when they withdraw agents that are inhibiting destruction, such as prednisone or Imuran, because we're pretty sure that there's a balance here that we're playing.
0: So in these trials then with the newer agents, are the steroids continued?
1: Generally, what we suggest that people do, and in all of these trials, the steroids were continued when they came on. They stayed on the agents. They were on when they started the trial, and they had to be on a steady state. So in all of these trials, they were allowed to be on prednisone, they were allowed to be on imuran, and some of the trials patients were on steady doses of cytoxan, cyclophosphamide. And then over time, we were allowed by protocol to begin to decrease these agents. And in fact, that was one of the most impressive things in the pivotal trials was that we were able to get many of these patients either to decrease their doses by up to 25% or completely discontinue prednisone or other agents that they were on.
0: What's been seen with these two agents in terms of side effects and toxicity? Right.
1: So one of the big concerns I think that everyone has had about these agents is whether or not we would see thrombosis. Could these agents activate platelets? And when we saw these patients suddenly making large numbers of very young, active platelets, would they be more likely to clot? Now, I think we should put that on the background of the fact that it may be that many patients with ITP are hypercoagulable or prothrombotic, if you will. And there was an interesting study done by Lou Alador and co-workers. They looked at, it was approximately 150 patients, I want to say, but somewhere in that ballpark, looking at whether or not they had at some point had a venous, not just venous, but any kind of thromboembolic event. And that could be either arterial or venous. And indeed, approximately 5% of these patients at some point in their history had either, and it could be before they came down with ITP, but at some point, had had some embolic or thrombotic event. So, We're adding the agent to what might already be a prothrombotic state, and that's part of the big concern with this. Now, these are patients who have an inflammatory disease, and so perhaps it's not that surprising that we saw venous events as often, at least, as we did arterial events. And the incidence of these events are somewhere between 5 and 7%. Now, the agents were a little bit different in how the patients were chosen and who was eligible. In the remiplistim trials, they really took all comers in the early trials. In the l trials, they did exclude some patients who had previously had thrombotic events. So there was a little bit difference But I think even considering that, we did see that there were thrombotic events that occurred on these agents. It was not necessarily, at least statistically significantly, more than what we saw on placebo, but it was clearly there.
0: So I want to ask you about these three papers that were presented at the oral session looking at these new agents. First, the paper by David Cooter, Abstract 679.
1: This was actually a very interesting study. This is a study looking at remiplistam versus standard of care. And what they did was they randomized patients to receive either remiplistam or to just be treated as per standard of care, as any hematologist would treat them for a year period. They did have a six-month safety follow-up on these patients. But basically, we were looking to see whether or not patients would be more or less likely to require splenectomy, to go on to splenectomy, or to have what we called therapy failure, that is a count of less than 20,000 for four consecutive weeks or a major bleeding event, or some other change of therapy that was required because of side effects or bleeding. Patients were randomized two to one in this trial to try and get a better sense for safety I think we know a lot about what the natural history might be in many of these patients, so they really did want to load more towards patients getting treated than not. They enrolled 234 patients with chronic ITP. 157 of them were randomized to receive drug. They had ITP for a median of approximately two years, and almost three-quarters of them had received at least two previous therapies. Many of them had received much more than that. All of them were less than 50,000 at the time of randomization, and what was standard of care was basically either standard practice in that institution, or there were institutional guidelines that were being followed. These patients who were on the standard guideline arms could receive anything pretty much, including rituximab, IgG, azathioprine, danazole, platelet transfusion, steroids, pretty much whatever the physician really felt the patient needed. So there were two parallel primary endpoints, the incidence of splenectomy, as I mentioned, and the incidence of therapy failure, as I defined it. And if patients discontinued the drug or left the study at all, that was considered a therapeutic failure or the same as a splenectomy. So they were included in patients who had not done well. In the remiplistom arm, 36% of the patients who were on the standard of care arm wound up going for a splenectomy, and two-thirds of those who received a splenectomy did so within the first 20 weeks on study. And this was very statistically significant. In terms of therapy failure, 12% of the remiplistom patients, that is, did not have a platelet count of greater than 20,000 for four consecutive weeks, whereas 30% 30% of patients who are on the standard of care arm, and again, very statistically significant. Bleeding greater than or equal to grade 3 was not that dissimilar, about 3% in the remiplistam arm, about 7% in the standard of care arm. And grade 3 bleeding was a little bit more than nuisance bleeding. It was bleeding that required attention. In terms of adverse events, very, very similar, 96% versus 92%. And we always have to remember when we look at these studies of adverse events that we include things like someone having an upper respiratory infection is put into the pile of adverse events. So we have to talk more about what were considered serious adverse events, and that was 23% in the Rememplis and 37% in standard of care. I don't believe that reached statistical significance. Now, in terms of treatment-related serious adverse events, we're talking 5% in the remiplostimarm and 8% in the standard of care arm so again not that dissimilar in terms of death no patient died an itp related death 1% of the patients on the remiplostimarm died and 7% on the standard of care arm again i don't think that that was statistically significant i think for me what's important about this study is first of all there are many patients with itp who will go into a remission at some point in their first few years. We know that some patients, even years after diagnosis, will go into a complete remission or will go to a partial remission. So part of this is just avoidance of bad therapies or therapies that are not reversible like a splenectomy. I think the other thing to look at is it's also a reasonable way to treat somebody who is not tolerating other therapies and that's, I think, the big thing here is we're talking about improved quality of life for these patients because many of them are really not going to be cured. And it's important to remember these drugs are not a cure. They still have their ITP, but it is a way, perhaps even for short term, to give them a steroid vacation.
0: Do you see any kind of rebound if you stop the agent?
1: Now, there have been some studies that have looked at that. There was one study done with El that showed that about 10% of patients had rebound thrombocytopenia meaning that their platelet count dropped below their baseline platelet count upon entry of the study. It is not predictable which patient is going to have rebound thrombocytopenia. Some of these patients have very severe rebound thrombocytopenia. An abrupt withdrawal of these drugs I don't think is recommended. I think it makes sense, number one, to take them off these drugs gradually. Even in patients with very high platelet counts, There were many in the initial pivotal study, there were many patients who late in the study actually wound up having protocol violations because some of the investigators noted that they were having rebound thrombocytopenia, and although they were supposed to hold the drug when the platelet count got over 450,000, many of us did not hold that drug after having some episodes of very severe thrombocytopenia and bleeding. So I think one of the things to recognize is that although a very high platelet count of a million might be very frightening and we want to hold the drug, I think that is not necessarily the best thing to do. Remembering that the way I described how thrombopoetin works, that native thrombopoetin levels are going to go down if you have lots of platelets, you may literally be pulling the rug out from under someone and leaving them with no stimulation, no native stimulation if you suddenly take away the drug.
0: What about the paper by Bustle et al., another one looking at ramoplastim. This was a five-year follow-up of the open-label extension study.
1: Yeah, Jim Bussell study was of great interest to me. I also was involved in some of those patients. This was a five-year update on the long-term efficacy and safety of remiplistim, the five-year update of the open-label extension study. So this was not a randomized study. All of these patients had previously been on trials with remiplistim and then were rolled over into the open-label study. Their target platelet count in the open-label study was fifty to 200,000. And what was, I think, really exciting about this is that all of these patients were eligible for home self-injection. So the patients needed to come in while they were stabilizing their dose. And then once their dose had been stable for at least two weeks, they could then go on home injection and have their counts checked once a month. 292 patients were enrolled in the study. And about two-thirds of them were female, similar to the ITP population. Most of them had had ITP approximately five years, but some of them were as long as 46 years. So there were a lot of patients who were very refractory. A third of these patients were splenectomized as well. So we're talking a very typical ITP population, but a refractory one. And they reported on patients who had been treated with up to 244 weeks The median time was approximately 48 weeks, so about a year. The median time for being on the drug was about a year in this study. The majority of these patients had been on self-injection. More than half of these patients had counts of greater than 50,000 at 95% of their visits. So we're talking very responsive and stable patients once they began the study. And three-quarters of them were able to either decrease or discontinue their prior ITP medication. So again, very significant for patients who some of them had been on steroids for years. The adverse events that were seen were relatively mild. Now, bleeding events, there was no increase over time of more than grade two bleeding events, which are not really very significant events, um, grade two. Now, there was a 6% incidence of thrombosis without any increase over time. So patients who received the drug for five years, we didn't see an increased number of patients over time developing this. 60% of the thrombotic episodes were arterial, but that, of course, leaves 40% of them being venous, which raises the question, again, of how much is an inflammatory process important in thrombotic events in ITP? Now, one of the big concerns that people have had is whether or not we would see development of reticulin and myelofibrosis on these agents, specifically because of platelet-derived growth factor being made by megakaryocytes and causing fibrosis. So 31 patients of the 292 patients who were enrolled did have bone marrows done. There was increased reticulin noted in 10 patients. Four of these were more than what had been noted at their baseline marrow. There was no collagen fibrosis noted in any of these patients. There was no myelofibrosis noted in these patients. These patients were not developing a myeloproliferative disorder, which is an important distinction here. And when the drug was withdrawn, three out of four of these, when the marrow was rechecked, had decreased amounts of reticulin in the marrow. So it appears that this is a reversible Event, Although, again, we'd have to follow this for very long periods of time to know whether or not all patients are going to get better. There were platelet counts of greater than 400 in a number of patients, though it was not particular to patients who developed thrombosis. So it's not necessarily that we can equate a very elevated platelet count in these patients as a risk factor for the thrombosis. I think that's a very important point, that just because their platelet count goes high doesn't mean that's what's causing the thrombosis.
0: Sounds like not a whole lot of red flags there.
1: No, I think it's overall a very safe agent. I think patients who are known to be prothrombotic, that it's an agent I would probably not want to use because for all we know, what's protecting these patients sometimes may be their low platelet count. At the same time, it's important to remember that there are many patients who have ITP who also have antiphospholipid antibodies, and their platelet count falls when their antiphospholipid antibodies and their lupus anticoagulants are actually becoming more activated.
0: How about l or There was a paper presented from the EXTEND study also looking at long-term treatment.
1: And that was the l extension trial that was reported by Dr. Sala, that also was an open label phase three trial of two hundred and ninety-nine patients, one of the biggest trials ever done in ITP. Again, two thirds of these patients were female, so typical ITP, a third of them approximately were splenectomized, a third of them were on other medications when they started this. The breakdown of patients in terms of how long they had been on drug, 240 of them had been on the drug for at least six months. 17 of them had been on for at least two years, so not quite the same amount of follow-up yet that we've seen with the remiplistim trials. There was no difference between splenectomized versus non-splenectomized patients in terms of whether or not they responded. It was approximately an 80% response rate in both of those groups. And the median increase of—it took a median of two weeks to reach their target of greater than 50,000 in these patients— And the median patient, the median was greater than 50,000 throughout the study after they once reached that increased baseline for them. A response was basically defined by greater than 50,000 and at least twice the baseline that they came on at. So if you came on with a platelet count of 30,000, you had to reach 60 to say that you were a responder. And about 70% of patients reached this and remained this way while on therapy. Now, if we look at the baseline of these patients, what they were like when they came on, 56% of these patients had bleeding. And on therapy, that was decreased to, depending on which group you were looking at in terms of time, between 20 and 40%. The patients who were on longer did have more bleeding events, which is not surprising because not everybody stayed at their elevated level at all times. Like all ITP patients, they get a cold or they get something else that sets off their disease, and they can drop their platelet counts. Very few adverse events. Again, headache seems to stand out there, but in previous studies have not been different between the arms. There were five deaths in this study. All of these were felt to be unrelated. Now, I think the only red flag that might be here is that with this agent, about 8% of the patients did develop increase in their LFTs. And for a signal for a patient to be felt to have an increase in their LFTs, it had to be at least three times ALT or AST, and the billing had to be at least greater than 1.5 times their baseline. 2% of the patients actually had to discontinue the drug due to an increase in LFTs. Now, I know that some of these patients, they actually didn't realize that their LFTs had increased and were continued on the drugs because these were being done at a central lab and they were being continued. And by the time they reported back that their LFTs were increased and they were talking about stopping the drug, the LFTs had gone back to normal. So many of these patients normalize after this. A little bit difficult to know what that signal means, but certainly it's there. Four percent of the patients had a thromboembolic event and their platelet counts were anywhere from 14 to 400,000 when they developed that event. So again, there wasn't a clear... Relationship to platelet count. It's important to understand, though, that since there is some wavering of the platelet count, it's hard to know when a thrombosis actually started. So you might recognize it when the patient's platelet count is 20,000, but you don't know that it actually didn't start when the patient's platelet count was higher than that. Now, one of the things I would mention about this agent that I think is important to understand is that we would all assume that a patient would much rather take an oral agent Than to take a sub Q agent, and particularly the way the FDA has approved remiplistum. Although in the trials patients were allowed to self inject, the way that this has been approved, they have to receive these injections in the physician's office, and it has to be in a hematologist or oncologist's office. So, of course, that can make it a little bit tough for patients who don't live nearby their specialist. So, people were thinking that it would be much easier to have an oral agent. This particular oral agent has a lot of interference with divalent cations. So milk, calcium, patients who are on TUMs because of their prednisone, they have to have at least two hours on either side of taking the agent from food. And that means that some of these patients, certainly some of the ones I had, actually have to either fast for quite a long time. Remember, a lot of these patients on prednisone, they have diabetes, they've gained a lot of weight, they have type 2 diabetes – That's not always so easy. There are some patients who actually have to wake up in the middle of the night, set their alarm for 4 o'clock in the morning, take their drug, and go back to bed. And most people don't mind that that much. If you've been an intern, you certainly don't mind that that much. You're used to that kind of thing. But it can be problematic. There are some new agents that are undergoing testing right now that don't have that same restriction. Now, in terms of reticulin, bone marrows were required on all of these patients who were in the L-Trombebeg extension trial at one year. Eighty-six of these have been done. Fifty-eight percent of those showed no evidence of fibrosis. Thirty-six percent of them showed grade one. One of those did have actually increased collagen. Six percent of them had grade two fibrosis. Two of those with collagen. None of them had grade three. And there was a recent report by Cooter that evaluated baseline reticulin or reticulin in marrows in patients who do not have myelofibrosis. It was impressive to note that there are an awful lot of patients who have ITP who have some baseline reticulin to start with. So, what to make of these is really unclear. And what this is going to mean, I think, long term is unclear. If we use these agents for 20 years on somebody who has a chronic disease, What's going to happen to someone? So I think that we still have to exercise some caution with using these agents and not perhaps use them as our very first agent.
0: How do you yourself go about choosing between the two?
1: I think that this is something you just have to talk to the patient about and really what it is they prefer, talking to them specifically about – Do they mind coming in? How difficult is it for them to come in? How difficult is it for them to be fasting? And I think that it becomes a personal preference. Some of them can get insurance coverage if they have an injection in the physician's office. Some of them cannot. So cannot get insurance coverage for an oral medication or get better coverage. Both of these agents have programs by which they are helping the patients afford the agents and giving them some financial help. So I have not had problems getting patients on the drugs. But certainly because they're expensive, they run about $4,000 a month generally, insurance companies do want to know that you have tried other agents on these patients and they have failed them before putting them on. Now, it is important to note, we talked a little bit earlier about what happens when you withdraw these agents suddenly. On this l Trombobec extension study, 8% of the patients had a platelet count that was at least 10,000 below baseline when they withdrew the drug. So again, a little bit of caution there about sudden withdrawal of those drugs.